For over 45 years, I have announced on radio and television and written in literature that I would pay a $10,000 certified cashier's check to anyone who can show me in the Bible the following phrases or words. Immortal soul. Immortality of the soul. Your immortal soul. My immortal soul. Their immortal soul. Now once in a great while, someone completely misunderstanding what I'm offering will try to claim that by finding the word soul somewhere. I know the word soul is all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And do you know that the Bible was not written in English? I received a letter many years ago from a lady that was so angry with me because I had said, reading from a portion of the book of Isaiah, that I was using the Moffat translation. And she said, Garner Ted, I'm here to tell you that if that King James translation was good enough for those disciples, it's good enough for me. And she didn't like it at all that I was using the Moffat translation. And so many people think, I guess, that during Bible days, if people walked around like we do with a big Bible under their arms and a notebook and a pencil, and they all were a lot of Bible students. Well, no, the English language wasn't even evolved. It evolved. It wasn't invented out of the High German, the Greek, Latin, and, and uh, some of the other languages many, many centuries later. So a single English word did not appear in the original text. It was all written either Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. Now, Athenian cab drivers are not Bible scholars. We used to have people in Ambassador College decided to learn the Greek alphabet. And they would learn the Greek alphabet. They would stand there at the blackboard and show you that they could do uh, Psi and Omega and Upsilon and so on. And then they would look at an exhaustive concordance and they would begin to try to figure out what the meaning of a Greek word was. Well, there have been an awful lot of people who have spent their entire lives and become LLDs, doctors of letters and foreign languages, who have done all of that for you. And all you need to do is to go to a diaglot or the Greek interlinear or Westcott and Hort or perhaps the exhaustive concordance by Strong's or Cruden's and look it up. You don't have to go through all of that yourself. And so some of these students would become very inflated and egocentric because they thought they knew a little bit of Greek. Well, that's it. They only knew a little bit of Greek. And as I said, in Athens, cab driver is not necessarily a biblical scholar. I want you to turn to Luke 16, verses 31 to 19, which is one of the best-known parables. And this is one that people have thrown back at me, saying, Well, now, Garner Ted, you say that when we go, that when we die, we don't go to heaven, and the wicked don't go immediately to hell. Well, I have found a scripture that says that this wicked rich man was in hell, and he was being tormented, and he was on far. You know, they say far down there. Anyway, uh... That's how come we know that noonday volunteer firemen were mentioned in the Bible in connection with the birthday of Christ because they had come from afar. Anyway, forget that. All right. Luke 16 and verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, meaning looking through the garbage or the trash out back. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. I'm tempted to say that's the only place in the Bible where a dog has a name, but I won't. There's Rover, and then there's Moreover, but that's something somebody else came up with years ago, so forget that one as well. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
seems to say that Abraham believed that you could learn about salvation by reading Moses and the prophets. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I read the entire thing through so that you have the sense of it. Now let's go back and look at it verse by verse and word by word. It says, It came to pass that the beggar died. What happened when he died? What was the next thought in his consciousness, if there was any? In Ecclesiastes 3, 19 and 20, it says this, For that which befalls the sons of men befalls beasts, even one thing befalls them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. So man dies in the same way that a dog that gets run over out here in the road dies. Same way a chicken or a horse or a cow. As one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man has no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Remember that when God spoke to Adam, he was speaking to the conscious man. He was looking into his eyes, and he said, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. He didn't say, Dust is your body, but your spirit will go to heaven. He said, you, the conscious individual with the consciousness, are dust, and you're going to return to dust. It means earth, red mud, red clay is the meaning of the word Adam. Look at Psalm 6 and verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? So when someone is dead, they're not praising God, and they have no remembrance of God. There is no consciousness, no remembrance. Psalm 49, 12 to 14. Nevertheless, man being an honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. And then Psalm 146, 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. When you die, all goes blank. Your thoughts perish. You don't remember God. You don't have any conscious thoughts. There are many, many scriptures that prove that over and over again. Now notice John 5, what Christ said about the resurrection, verses 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. The Greek word for grave in the New Testament is Hades, H-A-D-E-S. You can look it up in all those sources that I told you about. It has nothing to do with infernal regions. It has nothing to do with hot, heat, temperature. If anything, it is the opposite of that, like cold, dank, and dark. And it really means the grave. It means a hole in the ground. Now, when is a grave not a grave? A grave is not a grave unless there's a body in it. It's just a hole in the ground. If you put a body in it, it's a grave. And Hades in the Greek merely means the grave. Sheol, S-H-E-O-L in Hebrew, is the very same word that is translated grave and sometimes translated hell, unfortunately, in the Old Testament and in Hebrew, it also means the grave, a place where the dead are. Marvel not at this, said Jesus Christ, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. No wonder then, in the second chapter of the book of Acts, you read in Peter's statement that David is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher remains with us unto this day. And a few verses later said, For David is not ascended into the heavens. And yet the prophecies say that David is going to rule over all the twelve tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God, and that David will be resurrected. But he was not alive at the time that Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. He was not alive prior to that time. He was dead and buried, and his grave, his sepulcher, is with us unto this day. And Jesus said something here that most of the Protestant churches will not accept. Catholic, Protestant, they will not accept what he said. 
that they shall come forth under the resurrection of life. What does this mean to the average person who is not a biblical scholar, is not read very much in a Bible, depends upon the professionals to give them what they're supposed to think, and who believes in the immortality of the soul, an ever-burning hell, and heaven for the saved? What do they do with this? Well, they've got to figure out some way by which God takes these souls up in heaven in the beatific vision, and He yanks them out of heaven, and He puts them down beneath six feet of earth in an old cancer-ridden, decayed, ugly body that is already completely disintegrated and been eaten of worms. Then He reconstitutes the body and the soul, resurrects them, and then goes to the business of having the angels look through the records to decide whether or not they should have been in heaven all that time. Is that what happens? Well, it's all you're left with, isn't it? I mean, if they believe in the immortality of the soul, how do they some t somehow justify the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of life? And he said, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation or condemnation or judgment. Well, then there are at least two resurrections, aren't there? Now, I've dealt with that time and again. There are actually three mentioned in the Bible. There is the resurrection of the just, the dead in Christ, the resurrection of all the masses who have never heard, quote, the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished, Revelation 25, and then death and Hades, or the grave, were thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, the last five verses, and that is the kind of a resurrection we'll deal with a little later in this parable about the rich man. When a wall of flame covered in the second chapter of Second Peter, when the elements on fire with fervent heat shall melt, and the wicked are going to be completely destroyed. First Corinthians fifteen, thirteen to twenty three, I won't read it all but skip along. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. If Christ did not rise from the dead, there is no reason to even have a so called Christian religion. He is either alive or he is not. And if he is alive, then he has the power to resurrect the just. And he says in verse 15, Yes, and we're all found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ. And of course, Paul was there and saw it. Paul spent about three and one half years in person with Jesus Christ. He said, Have I not seen Christ? And last of all, he was seen of me as one begotten out of due season. So he said, we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, meaning all the disciples. They had seen Him materialized through stone walls. For a month and ten days, they had seen Him repeatedly time and time and time again. In Jerusalem, on the road to Emmaus, up on the shores of Galilee, He'd appeared to them when they least expected it. He made Doubting Thomas actually insert his hand into that wound in the side, put his fingers into the gaping hole that had been torn in his hands and wrist, and finally, these unwilling witnesses that didn't want to believe it. Remember, Peter said, I go fishing. I'm through. I give up. It was all a pipe dream. It didn't come to pass. So I'm just going to go to Galilee and go fishing. They gave up until this unwilling group of reluctant witnesses finally were convicted. And there's a great difference between someone believing something and someone knowing something. I've had people tell me all of my life since I've been in God's church that they have this or that belief. A lot of people think that their belief changes things. Well, a lot more people believe in the idea of Vishnu and the Hindu religion than the Christian religion. A lot more people in China believe in all kinds of pagan polytheism than the Christian religion. An awful lot of people are in the majority in places in this world where you consider a church, maybe your background was Methodist or Baptist or Church of Christ or Seventh-day Adventist, whatever it was. You're in a minority. There are vast majorities that believe differently than you do, but it says, let God be true, though every man be found a liar. And God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts. Human belief doesn't make things come to pass except human deception that will follow a leader into war or something of that nature. It doesn't affect the plan of God. If Christ be not raised, verse 17, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep. 
in Christ are perished. Time and time again, the Bible uses the phrase sleep, those who are asleep in Jesus. Notice, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, that's you and me in human flesh, all die, even so in Christ shall all be eventually made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Now, if I had a class of third graders here in front of me, I would probably take a blackboard and I would put first and then I'd put afterward. I'd say, now children, if your mother, mother says to you, you can have your ice cream, but first you've got to eat the broccoli. How would you understand that? Would you understand you don't get the ice cream till you eat the broccoli? First you eat the broccoli, and then afterward you get the ice cream. What is there about first and afterward that people don't understand? It says Christ is the first fruits afterward. When? They that are Christ. When? At His coming. Oh! Now that is so simple for me to understand that. It doesn't boggle my mind, doesn't make me give up some idea, some egocentric doctrine that I got in my mind that I learned and I think I'm smarter than everybody else. It doesn't make me change my way of living. I don't have to change my diet. I don't have to change the way I select a necktie. I don't have to change the way I do anything. Drive my car. All I've got to do is accept this beautiful truth that people are in good hands with God if they are righteous and that when the time is right, they're going to come out of the grave and be caught up to meet the returning Christ in the air and that's the way it's going to happen. Now, I want to insert something here that is very important. What difference does it make so far as the dead are concerned? Now think about all these recalcitrant Baptists and Methodists and Episcopalians and Lutherans for just a minute. They are dyed in the wool determined that old Uncle Harry and Aunt Bess are in heaven. And they're not going to have it any other way. What difference does it make when you look into the Bible to see the state of the dead? And it says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, and a little later on, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. So, what difference does it make? So far as these people's belief that at the instant of death, Uncle Harry and Aunt Bess went to heaven, in a way, so far as Uncle Harry and Aunt Bess are concerned, now they're dead, they're oblivious, they don't know a thing, but so far as their minds are concerned, it'll be instantaneous. They will be in a resurrection. They saw the truck coming, look out, Harry, what was that? I heard a noise and felt something, a truck got us, and they'll still be in their mind at that instant of death. So I'm still saying... Why all the objections, why all of the barriers, why all the resistance that people put up to the truth of Almighty God? It doesn't make any difference so far as the dead are concerned, now does it? God says at the very instant, like the batting of your eyelash, so far as their consciousness is concerned, they are alive again and all is well. They're in good hands with God. Now. Christ, the first fruits afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 16, and I read this nearly every time I do a funeral. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, and millions of people are ignorant about it, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. They are dead, they're not alive. Only a very few miles from here, one of the saddest funerals, and I've had an awful lot of sad ones, was a young man in the prime of life. It was a very good friend of my son, David. And he was a skydiver. And he went over in North Carolina somewhere and got in the Army, and he joined the 82nd Airborne, and he was one of their skydiving team that did exhibitions and everything with these huge, big 
uh, kind of a parachute that they can guide, and they can actually land on one foot on a pipe plate and just stand up and walk away. And he was very, very good at it, but he was a headstrong young lad, and he liked to take chances. And one time he opened a little too late and banged himself up and broke a bone, I think a leg or an arm or something, and he came over to our office, and there he was resplendent in that beautiful uniform with all these badges and these shiny paratroopers boots and his hat and everything on, and David just loved him and they loved each other, and he and David jumped out of airplanes many, many times together. Well, he was not supposed to be jumping anymore, but he went down to San Antonio and decided to go up and jump, and he delayed a little too long again and went right through a roof, and it killed him instantly on impact. And right in that cemetery that is opposite the old office building on South Broadway, we had a military funeral where they're folding a flag and they shot the rifles and all of that. And I had to preach the funeral, read these very same scriptures that at the very instant that he was trying to struggle with that O-ring and trying to open that chute, he's going to wake up in the kingdom of God and have a 100-year lifespan in front of him and say, oops, I forgot, or oops, I waited too long, or whatever. He's going to say, oh no, whatever was the last thought, that thought will continue as if uninterrupted. And we have people right here, Anita, who lost her dear husband Woody, and one of the most tragic things that I've ever heard of was killed on return from their honeymoon. And I had performed the ceremony marrying them only about a week before, and then had to go back down there and perform his funeral. And I guess that's the saddest of all time, but there have been an awful lot of heart-rending ones. And I never failed to go through these scriptures because they are comforting, because they give us hope, because they tell us that our loved ones don't feel anything anymore and probably didn't feel anything at the moment they died. They're coming back. And so far as they're concerned, instantly. So I just have to throw out why all the resistance to the truth of God that is so wonderful, so comforting, and so beautiful that people have just got to have their way because there is a kind of a vindictiveness in the minds of some people. They really deliciously want to think about people leaping around in hell, beating at the flames, don't you think? Could that be a part of it? Makes me wonder. All right. I would not have you be ignorant, brethren concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, it should read, precede in the old King James English, them which are asleep. Three times in three verses, it characterizes the dead as in a profound, black, unconscious sleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And what did Jesus say? They shall hear the voice of the archangel. They will hear the last trump. And those that hear will rise from the grave. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, back to our parable. And it is a parable. Now, a parable is a conundrum. It is a puzzle. It is an illustrative story. It is a simile, but mostly it is an analogy. If I drew the analogy to you and me that we are like light bulbs, and Jesus Christ says that we are to show our light, and if we understand electricity, we understand that there is a place that is a power station that is producing the electricity. And it comes through a transformer, and it's converted into AC, DC, or whatever, maybe 110. And if we plug that light into the wall, and then we turn it on, there is a circuitous flow of energy. It doesn't just come to the light bulb and stop. It flows through the little filament, a little thin wire in there, makes it brightly glow. It's appeared it's almost on fire. And then it flows right on back to the source from which it came. Now, if I say, you are the light bulb, and Almighty God is the power source, and the electricity is the Holy Spirit, and it says, let your light shine, I am doing what? I'm merely giving you an analogy. God is not a dynamo or a power source. You are not a light bulb, and the Holy Spirit is not electricity. 
So here we have, and also in the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus explained to his disciples, they were puzzled, why do you speak to the masses in puzzles or in parables? He said, because it is not given to them to understand. In them is fulfilled the saying of Isaiah, which says, seeing they see not and hearing they hear not, lest they should turn at any time and be converted and I should heal them. That's like a New York beefsteak for people who know almost nothing about the Bible and have all of these other fanciful ideas. Jesus Christ saying he didn't want people to understand. He deliberately concealed the meaning of what he said so they wouldn't get it. That's what he said. Now here is a parable that ignores all the time elements. It goes from way back here to way over there. It goes from back sometime in the distant past all the way up to the final resurrection at Judgment Day of the incorrigible. It is there to give us a lesson. Let me skip ahead to tell you what the lesson is that most people have never learned. It's not merely a condemnation of the rich. That's there, all right. But it's a condemnation of people who are heartless, who are uncaring, who are not compassionate, who will not share, who will not give, and who will not help, who will not serve, and who will ignore suffering of other people while they lavish every bit of attention on themselves. But one of the most important parts of this analogy is what is said by the rich man when he sees the wall of flame approaching. If someone went to them from the dead, he responds after he's already been told, they have Moses and the prophets. Maybe they will listen if someone goes to them from the dead. And what answer was there? No. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't. And who was it who was raised from the dead and had the gospel to give to all mankind and commissioned his disciples, go you into all the world and preach this good news to every creature. Those that believe and are baptized will inherit eternal life. Those that believe not will be condemned. And so Jesus Christ is the one who is sent to the unbelieving world from the dead. And they have rejected him and murdered him when he came the first time. And if he were to come again as a humble carpenter from some small town, the world, and I'm talking about the religious world, would kill him again. Because he would stand for God's law. He would stand for God's Sabbath, God's holy days. Yes, every bit of the law which is not ceremonial. Not talking about meat and drink offerings, because in the beginning God did not saddle Israel with any of that. No, if he were to come preaching and teaching exactly as he did during that day, the religious leaders of the biggest churches would murder him all over again. All right. It says that the beggar died. And we have read all these scriptures, and we now know he was dead. If this is not a parable, if there really was a man named Lazarus and a rich man, then Lazarus is still dead. And he epitomizes the righteous, the downtrodden, the exploited, the helpless, and the poor, and the hungry. And what did Jesus Christ say? What is the way he hands out accolades or criticisms when he comes? He says, naked, and you clothed me not. In prison, and you visited me not. Hungry, and you did not feed me. And these astonished people say, when did we ever see you naked and didn't clothe you, or in prison and didn't visit you? If you have not done it unto the least of these, you have not done it unto me. And to the righteous, he said, naked, and you clothed me. In prison, and you visited me. Hungry, and you fed me. And if you do that to your fellow man, then that is one of the keys to gain entry into the kingdom of God. So is there something we must do? Or is it all just completely passive? You just believe and presto changeo, you're saved. I believe in Jesus. I confess Jesus. And you must confess Jesus publicly. You know, you hear them say that. Well, no, that isn't required. It doesn't say that before other human beings. But it does say it'd be ready to give an answer for everything that is asked you and you need to be able to explain. All right. Does it say that the beggar was carried by the angels into heaven? No. What does it say? It says he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, at the Last Supper, John was leaning, it says, on Jesus' bosom. 
And the bosom, you look at it in the Bible, I think it's mentioned about what? Uh, forget, 17 times I think I forget in the Bible. And it is merely that part of the upper chest or the breast encased by the arms of a human being. It means like a hug. It means a close personal relationship, an affectionate personal relationship, like a grandmother picking up a granddaughter and holding her in her bosom. So Lazarus is not said to be taken into heaven at all, is he? But into Abraham's bosom. Now, where in the world is Abraham? Well, let's see. Genesis 25, 7 to 11. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived in 103 score and 15 years. And Abraham gave up the ghost. The original old King James language should read expired or exhaled, gave up his breath, breathed his last, and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people, I should say, a hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, which is before Mamre, and that's the very plain where he had met the angels on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, there was Abraham buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. So Abraham died. Now where is Abraham? John 3.13. They will not stumble across that. I don't care how many times they'll wave a sign in front of a golf tournament. John 3.16. I've seen these guys wearing red and white and blue and everything. And they'll have a tournament assigned there, so they want to catch the TV camera, and they think they're really doing a great gospel work if they can just put John 3.16 up before the eyes of millions of people. Well, three verses before John 3.16, we all know that that says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. They don't even understand that. Perish on the one hand means to die and to rot away, and to have everlasting life on the other hand is a complete opposite of that. But three verses before that, it says, No man hath ascended into heaven. And they won't believe that. Now, here is Abraham having been died. He died, and he has been buried. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Hebrews 11:13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. And verse 39 of the 11th chapter, And these all, it mentions all of the great martyrs of the word of God, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. He received the physical promise in Isaac. Isaac was the promise he received. The promise of posterity, the promise of succession, the promise that of his seed, kings and nations would come, as well as that seed which would become Christ. But they did not receive the promise of eternal life that is expounded in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, a kingdom that they saw in the distance, a city not made with hands. Luke 13, 28 and 29, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, said Jesus to the Pharisees, when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Now what a contrast. They are eventually going to see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Where is Abraham today? Dead and buried. Dead. Is he conscious? No, we read that he's absolutely unconscious. No praise of God, no remembrance of anything. Completely, profoundly asleep. And for Abraham, the passage of time will be no worse than people who are being killed on the highways in America today. As far as he is concerned, so far as they are concerned, the passage of time is no different. It'll be the batting of an eyelash in a moment and the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. So Lazarus was carried into an intimate relationship with Abraham. When will he be carried there? When will the rich man see him there? If you remember what we read, it says the rich man saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. He looks over there and he sees Lazarus leaning on Abraham's bosom. And Abraham has his arm around Lazarus. And in that condition, the rich man calls out to Abraham. 
and wants some sort of alleviation, some sort of succor, some kind of help. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Now, it says that Lazarus was in an intimate relationship with Abraham, and that's only going to occur in the first resurrection at the time of the second coming of Christ. Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Now, it went on to say in the parable, the rich man also died and was buried. Now, do we need to go back and read every one of the scriptures we read about death, about the state of the dead? No, let's just apply them to the rich man. Because all of those scriptures from Ecclesiastes, 1 Corinthians 15, apply to the rich man as well. He died and he was buried. And it says, and in hell, he lift up his eyes. The Greek word hell comes from Hades. And almost always the Greek word Hades is used where you read hell, except in a very few special cases when Jesus Christ used the word Gehenna. The translators, bless their pointed little heads and pea-picking hearts, back in 1611, because of the myths and the superstitions that were right then rife and alive and well in the Church of England, believed in such things as ghosts, and they believed in the idea of the immortality of the soul, and ever-burning hell, and going to heaven when you die. They got all that from Mother Rome, and that was the preachment, that was the teaching of the Anglican or the Church of England at that time. And they were influenced by that. Otherwise, they would have said Gina, Hinnom, or Gehenna, where it said Gehenna, and they wouldn't put hell. And they would say the grave, where it said the grave in Greek, and they wouldn't put the word hell. If you look up the word hell, it comes from H-E-L, or Behalian, B-E-H-E-L-I-A-N, and is a Nordic goddess of the underworld, and is a completely pagan word. When my uncle was alive and I was a young boy, he put his potatoes in hell for the winter. Many a farmer in America stored their carrots and potatoes in damp sand in a gunny sack in hell. And it was a hole in the ground that was covered with earth and logs and had a little door. And you walked down in there and it was a horrible place. It was all dank and kind of smelly and musty. But that's where they stored the vegetables so not a little bit of light could get to it or those potatoes, the little eyes would begin to sprout. They didn't want that to happen. And if they just covered them with damp sand and did not let any light get to them at all, they would stay preserved for a long time. Believe it or not, they still use the word H-E-L-L to define a hole in the ground where you stored potatoes only a few decades ago. Now, the rich man died and was buried. And in the grave he lift up his eyes. When? When will the rich man lift up his eyes? Well, in the resurrection depicted in Revelation 20, 13 to 15, quote, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades, hell, delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We know Revelation 20 and verse 5 says, The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. That means all the little Vietnamese babies. It means all the Chinese and the Japanese. It means all the people of Africa, Central and South America, Southeast Asia, Australasia, the islands of the Pacific. It means billions of human beings who never heard the name, quote, Jesus Christ, end quote. Never heard it, never had a chance. It means poor helpless victims like that precious little girl the other day that was taken kicking and screaming from her own home and raped and murdered will come up in a wonderful world and will look back on the terrible agony, the pain, and the fear that, that she had to suffer as if it were but a moment. But it still does not alleviate what God is going to do. What I did when I heard of that, I just prayed, please get him. You know, I just prayed to God, please make sure he is brought to justice. Please just, but I just, I want God to get him even worse than this system is going to get him. But I did pray about that. They're going to be judged, every man, according to their works. This is the second death. God's Word says it is given to all men to die once, after this, the judgment. Now, let's understand that no matter how you die in a terrible fire, 
How many tankers do you think, how many ships do you think were torpedoed by the Germans off the Atlantic coast in World War II? Or off of New Orleans or Bogalusa or down there around Mobile? How many would you guess? Six or eight? Would you guess as many as ten or twelve? There were over three hundred. And most of those men on those tankers were burnt alive. Horrifying stories of the many dozens of U-boats that prowled all the way from Halifax clear into the Gulf and that sent torpedoes into tankers loaded with high-octane fuel or fuel oil or whatever and see these figures just bathed in oil and burning and they died, leapt into the sea and died. It doesn't matter how the first death comes to one, to us, to anyone. That is not the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death consciously knowing why in Gehenna fire to be incinerated like so much just ash and never to be resurrected but to be destroyed for all eternity. The wages of sin is death in Gehenna fire. That's why Christ said, don't fear man who after he has killed the body cannot kill what is called the suke. You get that word like psyche. And that means the innermost consciousness. It means the new creature in Christ. It means that he cannot kill the spirit in man. We all have a human spirit. Man can torture and kill a human being, but he cannot kill the human spirit. The spirit returns to God that gave it. God has the spirit in good hands. And the spirit is what will be resurrected with a reconstituted body if necessary or changed into a spirit being if the new creature in Christ comes through the time of the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead in Christ. So, the first death, no matter how it comes, blessedly, like my grandmother puts her glasses on her Bible, she's in her rocker, she was reading the Bible, and she just put her head back and went to sleep and didn't wake up. A blessed, wonderful way to die at age 96. Merciful and wonderful. Just went to sleep. No pain. We should all wish that that could happen to us or to our loved ones. But no matter how it comes, that is not the wages of sin. The wages of sin are about to be suffered by this man who was depicted as the rich man, who was heartless, cold, and cruel, lacked in compassion, and was egocentric, was selfish, was vain, and of course was lustful and satisfied all of his appetites while he turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to a man in horrible distress. Now let's go on and see. It says, This is the second death, verse 14 of Revelation 20, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, it went on to say in the parable originally, quote, Being in torments. What kind of torment? It said he's in the grave. Now, he is now resurrected. And coming out of the grave, he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus with Abraham's arm around him, leaning on Abraham's bosom in a loving, compassionate, first-person, friendly, father-son relationship with Abraham. He seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame, or by this flame. Well, I would think I would be screaming for a bucket brigade. I would be screaming, throw me in the nearest pond. I'd be screaming for the fire department. I would say, get a huge hose at 100 pound pressure, three inches wide, and just put it all over me. Can you reconcile someone on fire? His hair is burning, his eyebrows are burning, his nose is popping and sizzling, and all he wants is for Lazarus to just dip his finger, the tip of his finger, not even the whole finger, in water and come up there and stick it on his tongue? Now what happens when you're scared half to death? Your tongue cleaves to the roof of your mouth. You couldn't spit because it's all cotton. Your mouth gets real dry when you get very, very afraid. And that's what happens to the rich man. He is petrified with fear for what his eyes see coming, not what is happening yet to his body. He can feel the heat, but it's the torment of his mind that he wants alleviated. 
And so he says, please send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water just to the first knuckle and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Jesus Christ said, you shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and you yourselves cast out. And it comes to pass in the case of the rich man. Lazarus is sitting there and maybe they're even dining sumptuously. I like to think that in this parable eventually, if it really does become true, because it did say in Jesus' own language that I will not again drink of the fruit of the vine until I sit down and drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. There are going to be some sumptuous banquets. There are going to be some wonderful times. So I think here is the rich man seeing a wall of flame approaching, and over there in the most glorious, sumptuous, resplendent view you could have of people enjoying life is a table just laden with good food, and here's poor old Lazarus. His sores are healed. He's got new clothing on. He's got a happy expression on his face, and he's just picking up a big old leg of lamb or something and about to gnaw on it. And now the rich man sees the tables are completely reversed, and he gets what's coming to him. And oh, I love that. I have always been in favor, and you probably get that from some of the things I say about crime, that if they don't repent, now repentance wipes it all out. Total, absolute, soul-racking, body-shaking, tear-jerking repentance where a person just dissolves in self, you know, self-anger, self-condemnation, self-abhorrence and is broken-hearted to the point they say, I am not worthy to be scraped off the bottom of a garbage can. Please forgive me. I don't deserve to live another minute. Can you possibly forgive me? That kind of repentance of abhorring themselves for what they've said, thought, and done. God's mercy is so great. He says, His mercy endureth forever. Even a perpetrator of a horrible murder like that poor little girl can, if he repents, that kind of repentance, complete repentance, not the repentance of the world that is merely sorrow for being caught, but complete repentance, he can be forgiven. But to finish my thought, if they are not willing to repent, if they are the absolutely incorrigible wicked, if they will not turn to God and obey His laws, then they're going to get exactly what is coming to them. And I like that. I've never felt that a mass murderer should just get one bullet. But then, that's just my reasoning. Now, the contrast between the two is the lesson that you should get out of that instead of having the churches of the world pick on that one allegorical little story, which is a parable which Jesus Himself said in Matthew 13 was stated so that people wouldn't understand it clearly unless they are the very elect, unless they are called of God, and then they can understand it. There will be people who will listen to this tape who will be just like the guy that was lighting up a cigarette outside the funeral a few weeks ago up in Gladewater. I preached a funeral up in Gladewater, and then I had to go back and preach another funeral in Gladewater. And a few weeks later, in the very same funeral parlor, I told him what had happened outside as we went out to get in our cars after I'd finished that first funeral. I had waded through 1 Corinthians 15. I had waded through 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, 18, all along in there, 13 to 17, and had just read those scriptures with very few comments, just read through the resurrection chapter. And a fellow was heard to say, well, I really did enjoy the speech but I didn't agree with a word he said. Now that is amazing, isn't it? He liked to characterize it that it was a word that I said. Now, he didn't want to say the Bible he read. He didn't want to say, I disagree with 1 Corinthians 15. I disagree with what Paul wrote. I disagree with the New Testament. I disagree with Jesus Christ. But he wanted to say, well, I didn't agree with a word he said and characterize it as coming from me not from the Bible, not from the Word of God. There may be a person here and there that will hear this tape that will absolutely be made angry by this tape. And that's good, because that will prove to that angry person how wrong they are and what kind of a wrong, rebellious spirit they are in. But if others are helped and encouraged and come to understand that their loved ones are not burning in hell, 
and that there is no ever-burning hell described in the Bible, but the state of dead is absolutely just oblivious to any kind of pain or the passing of time, and that we are to comfort one another with that knowledge, then they will be relieved from shackles that bind them, and it's called the fear of death in the Bible. Through the fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage, and they can get out from under that bondage that is put upon them by the great false church and her daughters, they can get out from under that bondage that is put upon them by some of these preachers that love to stand up there and stomp around about fire and brimstone and heating up the fires of hell and dangling the sinner over the fires of hell and all that instead of preaching the real truth of God about the coming resurrection to life and to judgment and a 100-year lifespan in order to learn the truth of God. So I think we need to also understand that Jesus Christ of Nazareth plainly states by the fact that he is the one who, ra who was raised from the dead and commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news that Christ is alive, that he is coming again, that he's going to establish a world-ruling government, a kingdom, and an empire, why wouldn't anyone want to believe it? I wrote a booklet called The Best News You Could Ever Hear. And the way I opened a recent personal appearance campaign and the way I shall open several that are to come was as follows. My name is... Garner Ted Armstrong, human being, planet Earth. I represent the next world ruling government. That's a good place to begin. It also happens to be the truth. And people will remember that I said that.